Hey, um, I'm thankful to also Robert Cunningham for filling in last week. We took a little break in John 21, but, but we're back in Zechariah chapter 9 this morning. If you could please turn there as we conclude chapter 9. Uh, you're going to hear more of this language of, uh, of God's uh, coming victory over, you know, the, the kingdom of this world, basically. So as the, the kingdom of God advances, the kingdom of this world retreats. Uh, one will win, <laughs> and we know which one it is. Uh, so we're on the, the heels of some other uh, description of God's victory, but, uh, but let's pay attention Give our attention to verses 14 through 17. Please stand in honor of God's word. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall Drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Father, we again come and hear and receive your word. We ask that you would bless it, that you would make it bear fruit in our lives, that you would show us more and more of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Um, As you see printed in my, my greeting on the front of the bulletin, it's not uncommon, right, to to, to see different pictures of the church uh, all throughout the Bible. Um, and theologically, there, there are appropriate ways of thinking about the church. You can think about the church as a hospital. And we, we relish the reality that people come through those doors. They come through your doors. They come into our home groups. They come into our Bible studies. They come to our softball games. You know, and and we, we bear one another's burdens, uh, we patch up one another's wounds. We remind one another of the great physician whose gospel heals our souls and is a balm in Gilead. Uh, the, the church is a hospital where the, the pain and the ruin and the brokenness of this world can be healed and mended. Not perfectly, not, not, not this side of heaven, but, but we take steps forward and we're reminded that, uh, that brokenness isn't all there is and there really is hope and healing. Um, so the church is a hospital. The church can be a, a classroom of sorts. You know, we come and, and yeah, we, we get deep. We, we dig in uh, with the scriptures. We want to know what God's word says. We, we don't want to treat it superficially. We don't want to gloss over and just hear stories. You, know, you can go to uh, someplace else and, and do that. But we want, we want to know God's word. And so we come and we want to be educated. We want to be theologically you know, trained and disciplined. And so the church can have a classroom feel to it. Uh, the church can feel like a living room. It can feel like a, a place where we gather together and we love one another and we do life together and we get involved in one another's businesses and we we're brothers and sisters and family uh, to one another. All of those are valid uh, images of the church, but there's two images here that I think are really significant. The church is an advancing army. 
and the church is the flock of the Lord. We belong to our good shepherd. So Zechariah beautifully uh, intertwines those two images of an advancing army and a flourishing flock. And you can't have one without the other. In fact, uh, we need all of those images and more of the church uh, to properly understand who we are and, and, and whose we are. But let's, um, let's just get a little bit uh, zero in on how we are an army, uh, an advancing army, an army with banners, uh, as it's been called. But if you look at verse 14, you get uh, this, this language of a storm that's, that's approaching. Uh, the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like the lightning and the Lord God will sound the trumpet, you know, the thunder, um, and will march forth in the whirlwinds, the, the, the tornadoes of the south. Now, I love a good thunderstorm. I love to sit on our front porch. Our front porch faces east. Our storms come out of the west. And, uh, and so the front porch shields me from the, the wind and the rain. And I can sit there and I can smell the ozone. Uh, you know, enjoy the wind, see the rain going sideways, uh, and, uh, and, I, and I can peek around the corner of the house and breaks. And, and, I, and I do remember one storm last summer, uh, this front that came through, and there was a wind shear. And, uh, and you could see the, the way that that wind shear uh, was just making this uh, curvature in that dark frontal cloud as it was coming. Uh, the contour of that cloud was just remarkable. Uh, and then it came, the wind and the rain and the lightning. I love lightning. I love thunder. It's just fun. I love heat lightning. I love big lightning strikes. I don't like to be struck by lightning, but I like lightning. Um, so I stay on my porch, and probably that's not even the safest place, but call me a daredevil. Um, now, if I didn't have my porch, though, it would be a different story. If... if if I or you or if any of us were out in an open field and you see that wind shear, that contour on that frontal cloud, that dark, black, ominous cloud, you can see the rain, you know the wind's coming, you know the lightning's coming, you're in a field, what do you do? You run for cover. You better run for cover. You need to find a safe place uh, from that storm. And this is this storm, this advancing army of God that's coming and this is a picture of the church, believe it or not, marching behind God's lead with all of the, <laughs> the dark, ominous, you know, foreboding cloud for the enemy, uh, for the enemy, <laughs> the enemy. Uh, we were talking about sea and anemones uh, at the Georgia Aquarium in Atlanta, by the way. Um, there's an aquarium in Nashville, I think, too. Uh, so, when the enemy sees that storm cloud approaching, they're thinking, what do we do? Uh, and really the choices are, are one of two. You can either you know, surrender and, and, and get in line and fall into ranks with the approaching army, or you can be a speed bump. That's it. Those are your options. There's, there's no front porch you know, to, to just sort of watch this whole thing impassively or neutrally. Uh, Jesus said you're either for the kingdom of God or you're against it. And so you either fall in and get into ranks or, or you are a speed bump. That's the imagery from Zechariah. That's this picture of this storm cloud coming. And so when you think of the church, it's, it's, in, it's designed by God to be an advancing army. He's in the lead. 
we are in the ranks and we are marching behind them. So um, this is consistent all throughout Scripture. So for instance, men, I want you to know that when God made you, and let me speak to the fathers since it's Father's Day too, in particular, when God made you men, when God made you fathers, uh, he made you to be a warrior. You're a warrior. You're not told that enough. We are not told that enough. That you are, you are a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You and I are called to, to fight the good fight. Um, we are surrounded by voices that want to emasculate men, that want to neuter you, that want to feminize you, that want to ungender you. And you are uniquely designed to be a warrior and to fight the good fight, to be courageous. And to get into the fray in loving ways. And we'll talk more about those. But I just want to make sure that you understand that when God made you, he made you to be a warrior. Now, what about the women? God made you to be warriors too. Now, the language is a little bit different. Uh, when you see in Genesis, uh, the, the, the Eve comes along and she's a helper, right? What's the helper? You know, you, it's sad. Sometimes our English language doesn't do justice to really the, the, the significance of the words that we run across in the Bible. But just so you know, when God made Eve to be a helper, he did not make her helpless. He designed her to be Adam's Azer. And when he gives Eve the dignity of being the helper, the Azer, he places on Eve the same dignity that belongs to God when he uses that same title for himself, the Ezer. I lift up my eyes to the hill. Where does my help come from? My Ezer come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Women, you are designed to be a helper warrior to you know, the, the lead male in your life. And, and if that's your husband or if that's your father or whatever the case may be. Uh, we are all united in this battle. The church is designed to be an army, an advancing army. And together, men and women are called to fulfill the creation mandate to subdue the earth and to fill it. And God called our first parents to make the earth and all who follow Adam and Eve and, and receive this mandate and take it upon ourselves. We are called to make the earth a place that recognizes the lordship of heaven so that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is, is Lord, that will recognize its creator king. That's our mandate. And that's what we're called to be as a church, a place that advances that truth. And so as an army of warriors, um, each of us is being called to carry out you know, his or her duties uh, as, a, as those who are following our leader. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, for instance, to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. We have to see ourselves as, as distinct and separate uh, from the world. You know, sort of that civilian versus uh, enlisted uh, dichotomy, and we're different from the world, and we have a purpose, and we have a mission. We're not just kind of coasting on autopilot, and there's, so there's this real uh, passion behind uh, the advancing army. So this generally isn't how we think of the church, though, is it? Um, you know, we think of the church in, in a little bit more um, 
uh, tamer ways, I guess, uh, especially the world doesn't regard the church very highly at all. It sort of feels like the church is a nuisance uh, or, or just insignificant or just, you know, n- nothing to be uh, respected at, at all. And, and uh, one of my heroes, uh, C.S. Lewis, was, was reflecting on this, was writing about it in his book, The Screwtape Letters. And if you haven't read that, uh, he's imagining this correspondence between a senior demon, his name's uh, Screwtape, to uh, uh, his associate, his apprentice demon, Wormwood. Uh, and, and what Lewis is imagining is that uh, hell is bent on a strategy uh, of misinformation, you know, a campaign of misinformation or a campaign of fake news <laughs> uh, that will disrupt the enemy, capital E, meaning the church, the kingdom of heaven. You know, from hell's perspective, the enemy is God. Um, and so when C.S. Lewis is imagining this, he, he has this correspondence between Screwtape and Wormwood, and, and Screwtape writes and says, one of the, our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me, though. I do not mean the church as we, the demons, see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. We don't think of the church that way. We don't think of the church as an advancing army, or if we do, we kind of get a little nervous about that. Oh, that's a little too you know, aggressive for, for my taste or whatever. Well, um, we have to wrestle with what Jesus says. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And he says, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Because those who are entering the kingdom of heaven in Jesus' day were stepping over a line. They were being aggressive in a holy way, in a good, healthy way. Um, I know this language is a little bit confusing. So what does Jesus mean by the violent take the kingdom of heaven by force? What he's meaning is that it's Violent in the sense that it's forceful, but it's not abusive. Um, it's determined, but it's not domineering. Um, it's, it's not violent in the, the worldly sense, uh, but it's violent in the valiant sense. It's willing to say, my earthly life, my earthly possessions, everything that you know, this world says to hold on to, uh, really means nothing when compared with what we receive when we receive heaven, when we receive God as our king, when we receive Jesus as our savior. A man can gain the whole world and still forfeit his soul. And that's valiant to recognize. And that's valiant to live consistently with. And that's a part of why the church continues to advance. We're not talking about violent in the, in the earthly sense. In fact, the leaders of this advancing army, as Paul tells Titus, are, are, are to meet this description. They must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered 
or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So what kind of advancing are we doing? If it's not the violent advance of earthly armies, what's, what's the violence of the kingdom all about? The gospel is about two kingdoms. The gospel is about light versus dark, the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of, of self. And so you've got to ask yourself, you know, if, if Jesus told Peter that, look, the gates of hell are, are not going to prevail against the church, um, those are the gates of hell. And if they're not going to prevail, then, then how can the gates of hell come down unless the church is advancing against them? And as Frederick Douglass, um, an anti-abolitionist uh, preacher and, and spokesman said, if there is no struggle, there's no progress. The church cannot remain passive. It must be advancing. That's the definition of the church. That's the picture Zechariah gives us. That's the picture all throughout Scripture. And so this is God's way of inviting us into what we'll just call gospel conflict. Gospel conflict. This is verse 15, where the Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. What does that sound like to you? Can we be honest? That sounds like a frat party. <laughs> what the heck? I'm not going to sugarcoat this, and I'm not going to try to sanitize this for you. I'm not going to try to stand here and tell you that, well, this doesn't really mean what it says. It means what it says. It's a picture of warriors who are drunk with victory. They are exulting in their conquest. Their veins are full of adrenaline and their faces are full of, of, of victory and their lungs are filled with what you know, Whitman called a barbaric yawp. Right? Remember, remember Dead Poet Society? Whitman's poem, The Song of Myself. I, too, am not a bit tamed. I, too, am untranslatable. I sound my barbaric yawp over the roofs of the world. That's the church with its barbaric yawp. Now, by now, I can imagine some of you are going, wait a minute. Um, quick question. I thought Jesus said something about peace. I thought Jesus said something about, you know, love. And, you know, what, how, how do these all mesh? Um, so, for instance, when you turn to the Beatitudes, Jesus says things like, hey, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, right? But then, right after that, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So my question is this, how can people be persecuted for righteousness' sake unless they are resisting unrighteousness? Because if you're not resisting anything, you're not going to be persecuted by the, the power brokers. You're just along for the ride. And, you know, my own testimony, my own, you know, experience growing up is I grew up in a lot of conflict, just a ton of conflict. A lot of divorce, a lot of estrangement, and just broken relationships. And so I learned early on that conflict was bad. And so my 
original understanding of Jesus' Beatitudes, blessed are the you know, peacemakers, it was, was a little bit warped. And I read it this way. See if you don't read it this way sometimes. Blessed are the peacekeepers, for they will be called sons of God. That's not what it says. Jesus didn't say blessed are the peacekeepers. He said blessed are the peacemakers. Because a peacekeeper is the kind of person like I was, uh, gosh, I would say almost all the way up to when we started Tabernacle. And I can remember, you know, uh, listening to this sermon going, oh man, I have to enter into gospel conflict. I hate conflict. Um, So it took me a while to catch on. But I was the kind of guy who, even if it was a false peace, even if it was just sort of this you know, ceasefire, not a real peace, not real restoration, not real reconciliation, but just sort of go to your corners and let's not fight right now. I was good with that. That was cool with me, just as long as there's no, you know, bombs being thrown at one another. But that's not real peace. That's not restoration. That's not reconciliation. That's not the gospel. The gospel invites us to to make peace to be willing to engage and to confront and to resist whatever it is that keeps people from loving each other and from uh, embracing one another, being reconciled to God, being reconciled to each other. The gospel means that we confront that, that we advance against that. We advance against unrighteousness. We advance against anything that is contrary to how God designed relationships with him and with one another. This is what love looks like. Love is an active thing. It's a verb. And so the church that loves Jesus will be active in its efforts to please Jesus. Love's going to oppose the things that are a threat to our relationship with Jesus. And so the church will oppose, you know, whatever's a threat to its intimacy with with Christ. And the church is going to oppose what's going to interfere with people's ability to receive the intimacy of Jesus. So we're going to advance against injustice and oppression, and unrighteousness, and anything that abuses people, and exploits people, and so on. The church cannot be passive in in light of that, and be faithful to God. A passive church is not a healthy church. An active, advancing church, that's a measure of health. So, why do we say this? Uh, the, The church, by definition, in Scripture, advances, and Jesus is enlisting all of us Uh, to engage in this gospel conflict. Why? Because our king, our warrior king goes before us. And Jesus demonstrates what it's like to move into loving gospel conflict and to advance intentionally. Um, In the the, um, Tolkien's you know, collection of the, the two towers and then uh, the, the return of the king, uh, you get the last battle on the Pelennor Fields. So if you remember the movie, or more importantly, if you remember the book, uh, Minas Tirith is the capital city of Gondor and it's under siege by, by uh, Mordor and it's about to fall. And the Rohimen uh, are, are uh, galloping to try to rescue Minas Tirith and come to their aid and assist in this battle. Uh, and so this, it's called the Ride of Rohan. Uh, and they fight on the battles of Pelennor Field against all of, you know, Sauron and the Dark Army and so on. And as, as the Riders of Rohan engage, they begin to win. And the light comes and the, the wind comes from the, 
the ocean, and so the fog and the darkness dissipate, and, and Tolkien writes this. He says, then all the host of Rohan burst into song, and they sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was on them, and the sound of their singing was fair and terrible. Remarkable description of war. I've never been in battle. I've never even I've never even been in a fist fight. That's how that's how much I did not do conflict <laughs> growing up. Um, but here you get this picture of a conflict that's so intense that there's actually joy and singing going on in the midst of it. And if I'm honest, and maybe you're like me, I read that and I go, that's disrupting to me, that somebody could have the joy of battle on them and sing as they slew, right? It's like weird. There's also something really enticing about that. It appeals to our courage and our valor to want to do something bold and brave against the enemy. Well, I just want you to know that that's a picture of Jesus. That when the joy of battle was on the riders of Rohan, that's a picture of Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame and then sat down at the right hand of the Father. That when Jesus went to the cross, what he was doing is he was giving us a picture of something that was fair and terrible simultaneously, beautiful and terrifying together. Jesus is the prince of peace, yes, but he's also a warrior. And Jesus fought for you. And he went to a cross for you. And he was the atoning sacrifice that was simultaneously beautiful and terrible, designed to take away our sins, designed to take away the sins of all who trust in him. Now, if the cross is only beautiful for you, if it's only just sort of this example of sacrificial love, then guess what? The cross gets reduced to a piece of pretty jewelry or a cool tattoo. That's it. Or if the cross is only terrible, you know, this execution and this picture of God the Father sending His Son to, you know, die on a cross, and some theologians, you know, who have lost the, the, the beauty and truth of the gospel consider that to be some sort of cosmic child abuse. It's only terrible meaningless, pointless. Who in their right mind would believe such a thing? Because they don't see both. You either trivialize the gospel, the cross, or, you know, it's abhorrent to you. But when you see both, what you see is that it's simultaneously fair and terrible. It's simultaneously beautiful and horrific because the cross is this life-changing, life-giving event where you see the beauty of a love that was joyfully willing to suffer crucifixion. He consciously and deliberately did that for us to take our sins away and to remove them as far as the east is from the west. He went into that conflict, that gospel conflict, and he was willing to suffer that kind of violence in order to restore us to himself and to one another so that we become this family of God with God as our Father. And that's why the joy of battle was on him. He was happy to do it for you. Well, this, let, me, let me switch gears, but then we're going to bring them together here. Um, Zechariah's imagery shifts real quick in verse 16. 
He says, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, right? If you've been in church, you know that God's the, Jesus is the shepherd. We're his, his people, the sheep of his pasture, Psalm 100. Um, that's not a new image. And for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. I want you to imagine this picture. It's very, you know, um, sort of uh, greeting card image of these green hills with sheep dotting all the hills. They look like pearls. They look like, um, you know, crowns with pearls in them on these green hilltops. And, and that's, that's this beautiful image that you get here. And, and it's the proof, right, that that God cares about our flourishing, that he's a good shepherd. And he wants to take good care of his sheep. Now, if you saw a flock that was, you know, haggard and, and, and malnourished and scrawny and, you know, spread all over without any kind of organization or care or watchfulness, then you would wonder, right, what kind of shepherd does this flock have? So obviously the, 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 the well-being of the flock reflects on the shepherd. The flourishing of the flock is an indication of the, the goodness and the beauty, the greatness of the shepherd, right? That's what we're seeing here in verses 16 and the beginning of 17. And then verse 17 continues, grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. And you go, all right, now I don't understand because I thought we were talking about sheep. Sheep eat grass. Sheep don't eat, you know, uh, grain and, uh, and grapes. Uh, sheep don't eat Grape sandwiches. Uh, so I don't get it. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the real flock now. Us. We will feast on grain and wine. Uh, this is a picture for us feeding on the true bread of life and taking from the cup in the new covenant, that which Jesus pointed to when he said this very controversial statement where he actually lost a good deal of his followers because they didn't understand or they couldn't grasp or they, or they just didn't want to step over the line. They weren't willing to do the violence to themselves and to conventional wisdom and step over and follow Jesus because Jesus said this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Say what? That sounds violent. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now, um, another way of saying this is not only we eat his flesh and drink his blood, but we abide in him. He's the vine, we're the branches. And we've got to stay connected to Jesus. And Robert Cunningham did an amazing job last week of sharing how when we seek maturity as Christians, it's not by becoming more and more independent, but by becoming more and more dependent upon Jesus, more and more connected to him, united to him. If you missed that sermon, go online and listen to it, please. I thought it was excellent. So you've got to be connected to Jesus. We have to feed on him. He is our bread. He is our wine. He is the vine, and we flourish in relation to how connected we are. And if we are not connected to him, guess what happens? We, be, we shrivel. We, we, we can feel our, ourselves hardening and, and becoming bitter. Um, but because we rest in Jesus and we're fed by him, we become more and more like him. Jesus is the good shepherd. 
And he takes good care of his sheep and he's committed to their flourishing. He's committed to our well-being. It reflects on him. But he's not committed. Hear this. He's not committed to our comfort. He's not committed to our safety. He's not committed to our prosperity. He's not committed to a pain-free life. But he is committed to our flourishing. And I understand that there are some hardships that just absolutely don't make any sense in the world. How in the world can God be using this for his good purposes in my life? How can this particular pain How can this particular hardship in any sensible way contribute to my flourishing and I will shrug my shoulders with you? But we walk by faith and we believe there is a day coming when we will look back and we will go, behold, the wisdom of God. Just and true are his ways. That day is coming. So, he's not committed to my safety. He's not committed to my comfort. He's not committed to a pain-free life. But he is committed to my flourishing. And, and remember back when we said that God created us in order to make the world a place that would bow its knee to its creator king? Well, the reason for that was not an end in itself. It's not just God's cosmic ego trip. The reason for that is because that would, that would be how the world would flourish. That the, the, the mandate was not just to subdue the earth, but to make it a place of flourishing and to fight for flourishing. This is how those images come together. The advancing army and the flock are, are together because if, we, if we're not fighting for flourishing, we're not flourishing. And if we're not flourishing, we don't have any energy for the fight. We need to do both. So let me wrap up with a few points of application. Fight so you can flourish. Fight so you can flourish. What I mean by that is, 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 is if, you've, if you've pressed the autopilot, if you're driving a Tesla uh, in your discipleship, uh, stop. You know, get back, both hands on the wheel, and take charge of where you're going as a disciple. Stop you know, being on permanent vacation. Stop you know, being passive about what is your next step as a disciple. Take the next step and fight for your own flourishing. You may not know it. Or you may not engage it, or you may not recognize it, but you are at war. We all are. Peter, Peter tells us, beloved, he's caring for our souls here, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, right? The passions of the flesh are actively at war against us. Are we active in our resistance, in our advance against them? Or are you just kind of in the same old pattern of, you know, sinning and repenting, sinning and repenting, never making any advances against greed, against lust, against pride, against laziness, for making advances for love? for peace, for joy, for self-control, for gentleness and faithfulness and the like? Are you, are you advancing? 
I'm not saying we don't have setbacks. I'm not saying it's not sort of cyclical, but I am saying it's not passive and we shouldn't stay on autopilot because we've got to fight for our own flourishing. And when we do that, then we have energy, then we have vigor and valor uh, to engage and to fight for the flourishing of others. Because that's what this is about. That the world would flourish and that other people would be blessed. That's why the church is here. The church is the only community on the face of this planet that exists not for itself, but for the world. And so what that means is that you and I are called to fight for the flourishing of others. Um, So when we were in Atlanta... (laughs) Uh, for General Assembly, one of the wonderful things that our, our host presbytery did was they not only uh, coordinated some different, you know, excursions for the kids and the wives um, where they could see parts of Atlanta, like they went to the aquarium and the zoo, but they also hosted mission opportunities, ministry opportunities. Uh, one was to uh, a ministry that serves refugees in Atlanta. Like over 30 different nationalities are coming through this group and they're fresh off the boat and they're just getting their legs. And Kathy and Lydia... Uh, went and they elected to take time and spend time with these uh, refugees and jump rope with them and love on these kids and be a blessing to them and get sweaty with them and enter into, you know, I'm going to feel weird, I'm going to feel uncomfortable, I won't know what to say to these people, whatever. And entering into that discomfort, engaging that kind of conflict for their flourishing. And then they went to Shalom City the next day to this church that was started by uh, Danny Iverson and his family, uh, some of you know the Iversons. Uh, and they planted this church on arguably Atlanta's most dangerous street because they want to see Shalom come to the city. They want to restore that city. And so they're doing all kinds of things to try to engage that community, make it a safer place, plant a church there, help people worship their creator king, their redeemer who loved them and gave himself for them. And so, you know, Kathy and Lydia are picking up trash alongside prostitutes who are also picking up trash and being invited into this beautiful picture of restoration. Helping other people flourish. We were at Sharando Lake yesterday and we're playing paddle ball. Me and Lydia are hitting the ball. Lucy, you know, we're having cousin camp this week. And this little boy comes along and he says, Lydia! And, uh, and we didn't know who he was, but he was one of Lydia's classmates from Wilson Elementary. And then last year, they all went to middle school. Lydia was at Wilson Middle School, and this little boy moved, and he was at Stuart Straff Middle School, but he remembered Lydia, and so they got to talking. And, and I met this little guy, and I said, so how's, how's Stuart Straff Middle School going for you? How, how is it over there? And he said, it's good, it's good. Um, but there are some bullies. Oh, okay. Well, what's that about? Um, oh, well, I can handle them, but, you know, they pick on some of the girls, and they call them ugly. And, um, and he went on to talk about how um, he stands up to them. And he says, you shouldn't do that. And I asked him, why, why do you do that? Because I'm curious, what's motivating this 12-year-old kid to stand up to these bullies? And he said, because God made them. And he was willing to fight for the flourishing of others in a good, loving way. Lastly, and this is hard, you and I are called to fight for the flourishing of our enemies. Isn't that what Jesus did? Part of being in Atlanta (laughs) was we got to go to the birthplace of Martin Luther King Jr. It's now a national park. Uh, They do a great job giving a tour and stuff. Uh, I hope you get to see it someday. 
And the, the whole uh, point to Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, and, and the Civil Rights Movement, the whole point of their nonviolent um, uh, resistance was not simply to win uh, the culture war, maybe you can call it that, of, of racism or segregation, not just to win that, but they, they weren't content just to win the war. They wanted to win their enemy. They wanted to win over his conscience. They wanted to win over her shame. Uh, they wanted to expose how awful, morally corrupt uh, racism and segregation was. But not, not to shame them and not to um, fight back the same way, but to win them over so that, that they would create what you know, they called the beloved community rather than more ostracization, more alienation. So here's the point. When you are in a fight, what are you fighting for? Next time you're in a fight, I don't care if it's a friend of yours, I don't, if it's your spouse, if it's your child, if it's your parent, if it's your coworker, your classmate, the next time you're in a fight, I want you to ask yourself, what am I fighting for? Am I fighting in order to be proved right? Am I fighting because I'm insisting on my rights? And if so, you may win the fight, but you're going to lose your enemy. Even if the enemy is in the very temporal sense. Whoever you're fighting against, you're going to lose them. Or am I fighting for my enemy? Am I fighting in a way that's going to show them love, in a way that's going to show them the gospel, in a way that's going to show them a beloved community? In a way that's going to show them the difference that it makes that Jesus gave himself for me. I no longer live. This life in the flesh, you know, I'm done. I was crucified with Christ. It was violent. I died. I had some dying to do. And every time we enter into these conflicts, we've got more dying to do. This is the violence of the kingdom. It's actually violence to the kingdom of self. When we lay down our lives and we try to show our enemy Jesus, we want to win our enemy, not just win a fight. And you can't imagine the difference this will make in your relationships if you get that. What am I fighting for? What am I fighting for? And if you decide that I want to fight to show this person flourishing, I want to fight so that my enemy can flourish, I want to fight so that they can see more of Jesus, then guess what? The gospel is going to help you to flourish and it's going to help them to flourish because then you will be committed to your enemy seeing Jesus in you. Then you will be committed to laying down your life. Then you will be committed to denying yourself and taking up your cross in order that others can see Jesus. Uh, it took me a long time to learn not to be afraid of conflict. It took me a long time to say amen to Zechariah, for instance. It took, but, but I don't have to be afraid of it. I don't have to, you don't have to be afraid of thunderstorms, you know, um, because what happens, even though it can feel violent, even though it can feel very disruptive, it brings rain, and the rain brings flourishing. Let's pray. Father, um, Thank you for loving us. Thank you for engaging your enemy. Uh, thank you for being committed to our flourishing rather than just judging us according to our sins. Thank you for giving us Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace and a mighty warrior. And we don't always get how those two uh, are reconciled, but we know that they beautifully coexist in him. 
And we pray that you would help us and lead us to, to fight uh, for our own flourishing and to fight for the flourishing of others and especially to fight for the flourishing of our enemies because you did that for us. And we want to show the world the difference that the gospel makes in our lives and in our church. And we pray that this church would continue to be and would grow in its ability to be an advancing army. And that Waynesboro and our county and our, our community, our nation and, our, and the world would continue to feel and see and, and appreciate and be blessed by the impact that all of us together can make. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.